You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist humanist podcast. My name is Brendan Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleiman. In this episode, we're going to be talking about a paper I've recently written about current developments in generative artificial intelligence, a paper in which I argue that the forces of capitalist competition seem to be propelling the development of this technology at a dangerous pace, far too fast, to develop adequate safeguards to protect against all the sorts of potential misuses. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. While our podcast is hosted by MHI, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. In just a moment, we'll be talking about artificial intelligence and capitalist competition. But first, as we do in every episode, Andrew and I will take just a few moments to talk about some current events. Hey, before we get into this episode and before we get into the current events section, we want to invite interested parties to take part in a Marxist-Humanist initiative discussion. We invite some people who apply to our Skype meetings occasionally. Um, The next meeting is on May 28th. In just a couple of days, it'll be about Ireland on the 25th anniversary of the peace accords and also the ongoing crisis in England. So if you are interested in taking part in the discussion, please write to mhi at marxisthumanistinitiative.org. Tell us about yourself and why you're interested. Hey, we're recording this current event section on May 25th of 2023. We're going to be talking about a piece. We were actually going to talk about a few episodes ago, but other current events were more current. But this piece is from Politico. The title is The Threat of Civil Breakdown is Real. And the authors are Stephen Simon and Jonathan Stevenson. Do you want to give us a summary of the the points of the article? Let me just say first that the indictment of a high-ranking intelligence cop in D.C., the head of their intelligence branch, before colluding with the Proud Boys, that came down six days ago. Lieutenant Shane Lamont. Shane Lamont, yeah. He he was in very close contact with uh, Enrique Tarrio, the head of the the Proud Boys, was passing all kinds of information to him and so forth. That's made this a, a new salient issue. But that kind of thing is the tip of the iceberg, according to this really interesting essay by Simon and and Stevenson from last month. What they say is the failure of coup on January 6th and pushback against the measures taken to lock people up and, and, and surveil them and so forth, that has made the threat of full scale civil war unlikely. But there's still a real salient danger, according to counterintelligence authorities, of smaller pockets of armed unrest wreaking sustained havoc and destabilizing the country. And what they're envisioning is that there would be like this right-wing domestic terrorism in isolated pockets. could gradually escalate, triggered by these weapons like AR-15s. That could increase polarization in the country to the point of irreversibility. And at that point, right, what would happen? Well, you would need local law enforcement to step in, and a lot of them would step down. They talk about mass abdications, and that would turn parts of the United States into what they call Darwinian enclaves, basically complete chaos and disorder. They say, oh, there's been a crackdown, but don't underestimate the MAGA movement. It's got grievances, and those grievances are widely shared. In other words, this is a big movement, so the right-wing domestic terrorists are like a tip of the iceberg on a broader movement that is basically sympathetic to them. And then they go into the, the problems with law enforcement. There's no domestic terrorism remit, so to speak. So you got various agencies that can maybe deal with the problem. Intelligence agencies like the CIA can't step in because they're not for domestic use, supposedly. But since there's no single federal agency in charge, the the whole thing is kind of piecemeal. And they don't have 
nationwide coordinated intelligence gathering, especially at the tactical level of like what's happening right now on, on the ground. That becomes a really big problem because these little right-wing groups, they're, they're not networked together. So you need a tremendous amount of nitty-gritty information to be able to assess the threat at any point. So the federal agencies have to rely on cooperation from local law enforcement and cooperation from local prosecutors. But they say, look, a lot of these local prosecutors are, quote, reluctant to step on the toes of those who put them into office. And also local and state law enforcement, quote, often have little interest in cooperating with the feds because they entertain lower threat perceptions, contentious legal understandings, or adverse conceptions of the role of government. This is just highfalutin talk to say that the state cops and the local cops oftentimes don't think that right-wing domestic terrorism uh, is a big threat, or they've got a different uh, idea of uh, how the law should operate, or indeed what the the government should be about. And many of them are indifferent to ideological grievances as any kind of threat. So very cautious in their reasoning, but basically they say, given the situation that the federal law enforcement needs to rely on local law enforcement to do its intelligence gathering on the, the ground assessment, but they're getting not enough cooperation. And it's the nature of the people who are staffing the state and local law enforcement that is a big hindrance. And this Shane Lamond, who was in cahoots with Enrico Tario of the Proud Boys, that's kind of like the tip of the iceberg. So in the end, Simon and Stevenson say, basically, don't look to federal law enforcement to be able to quell this threat of right-wing domestic terrorism and its escalation. It's going to come down to politics. The piece needs to be read carefully because of its very cautious kind of academic and understated manner. But you read it carefully, it's, it's, it's very alarming. At least I was alarmed. When you look at the problem of these law enforcement agencies on the state level, the local level, the federal level, they're all, you know, crawling with right-wingers everywhere. Even like Democratic cities and Democratic states, the police skew far to the right. You know, even in like a city like Philadelphia, where I live, where you people, you know, think of Philadelphia as being one of the main blocks of voters that propelled Biden to victory uh, a couple years ago. Just a few years ago, there was there was an investigation into social media profiles of police officers, and they found hundreds and hundreds of officers making racist and violent remarks, you know, very unprofessional remarks on social media. There's a big stink up in the city about it. Only a handful of officers got fired. This was like hundreds and hundreds of police officers in the police department. So it's all over the country. There's a self-selection where people who are skewed to the right are attracted to these professions. And then within these professions, there's active uh, recruitment by and attempts to infiltrate the police by far-right groups like the Oath Keepers. We've talked about that before in the podcast. Yeah, you got the the police union. They were weighing in very heavily on the mayor's race and also the attempts to get rid of the sort of progressive DA you got there. Yeah, and there's a history of the Proud Boys in Philadelphia fraternizing with the police and hanging out at the Fraternal Order of Police headquarters and such. So like these groups are, are, are very closely connected. I mean, the D.C. story didn't surprise me at all. We've suspected for a long time that there was involvement between the Proud Boys and the D.C. police just because of how poor the police response was to January 6th. Um, so they're, they're, they're everywhere. And they always have been heavily infiltrated by in the, the right wing. So I think the, the political article is right that, and this is like, symptomatic of a huge problem in law enforcement that these people are everywhere throughout the police departments in America. And um, if we're relying on local police to be a break against far-right extremism, we're kind of in trouble. Yeah. We, they say we can't rely on them. The only kind of responses that will be ultimately effective are, are political. What 
nobody is even venturing because I guess it's too much to wish for at this point is to try to clean up the local law enforcement and the local prosecutors. It's a very weird situation where despite the fact that the, the Republicans keep losing all the elections, we still have many ways a situation of dual power in this country with the Supreme Court, with the, the, the law enforcement. So, I mean, that's that's always been my hunch is that it's not that Biden and, and Garland and them don't want to go after the domestic terrorists and so forth. It's that they, they just don't have the power. And because they're that kind of a political party that, you know, is, is there to win elections, you, you need a social movement to fight this. And they're, they're not building it. What it has been very helpful for rounding up uh, January 6th people, because they dropped the ball on January 6th itself, regular people doing the investigation, doxing this and that, they've... They basically crowdsourced their, yeah, their work. Yeah, absolutely. To internet absolutely. sleuths. That could be capitalized on. You, you could have more and more of that. You could have civilian anti-fascist core, and, you know, the, the Democrats could promote that, and that could be an effective counterweight because federal agencies can't, can't do the job. But I can't imagine the Democrats even thinking that way. Well, we're going to have to leave it at that. Up next, a conversation about artificial intelligence and capitalist competition. We're recording this segment on May 19th of 2023, and we're going to be talking about uh, something I've been writing, a little paper about current developments in artificial intelligence and the sort of dangerous escalation of that research in recent months. Uh, do you have a title? Yes. The title is The Dystopian Promise of the Artificial Intelligence Industry. And it's going to appear in with... With Sober, sober senses. senses. Yeah. So... What is the main point of the article? The main gist is that this technology is is being developed so rapidly and the proliferation of it is so rapid, but there have not been adequate attempts made to figure out ways to keep it safe and to guard against very, very dangerous potentials and disruptions in the technology. That And it's just a, a typical case of the pressures of capitalist competition being so strong that there's no, there are not enough incentives to develop this thing safely. That, that's the main point of the paper. And it's, this is not a topic I'm an expert in. So I had a lot of questions myself that I wanted to understand more about the nature of the competition in over this technology and the way it was being developed and why it was being developed certain ways. And so I wanted to understand more of that. So a lot of the paper is answering a lot of the sort of detailed questions that someone like me has as an outsider to the field who doesn't have a background in all this stuff. Um, so I did a sort of a deep dive for a few weeks trying to read a lot of articles, listen to a lot of podcasts, see what people are talking about on all sides of these issues and, and see what's happening currently in the field. Because of all of the hype that has been given to generative AI in the past year, especially in the past, you know, maybe four or five months since the release of the large language model ChatGPT, there's been a lot of conversation out there to digest and take stock of with a lot of different perspectives. I wanted to kind of dig into all that and make sense of it for myself and make sort of a sort of summary of what I thought were the relevant points. You talked about disruption. It wasn't entirely clear uh, what you meant. Were, were you talking about the disruptive effects on society of the technologies? Yeah. Okay. So in other words, things are kind of being done in a rush and without regard to the disruption to society and jobs and uh, all kinds of things that, that could happen. Yeah. There are people in the AI in AI companies, you know, a lot of these companies have like AI safety researchers or safety departments, and they're supposed to be worrying about things like, could this be used for nefarious purposes? Could this could this chatbot generate illegal, offensive, racist, uh, whatever materials? But that aspect of the research is being completely shoved to the side in this mad dash to release chatbots as quickly as possible to compete with other companies. In the past months, we've seen people from within the AI research community, people who are working for these private companies and academic researchers as well, come out uh, and make public statements warning that this technology is being released too quickly without adequate research into how to keep it safe. I mean, these are people who have been like working in the field for decades, some of the people like Jeff Hinton, who was like the godfather of 
AI research coming out uh, a few weeks ago saying, whoa, this is happening way too fast. This is not safe. We, we need to stop now uh, or at least pause now until we have some kind of safeguards in place to guard against all the potentially disruptive things that could happen with this technology. So that people who are not familiar with all the terminology don't get like left in the dust here. I'd like to have you define a few of the terms that you've used. Let's first take the complex of terms generative AI or generative artificial intelligence. Uh, you mentioned either LLM or large language model and chatbot. What are those three things in the relationship between them? Well, artificial intelligence in general is a field in which researchers are attempting to develop computers that can think like humans. I mean, the ultimate aim of the field, according to most people in it, is to achieve what they call artificial general intelligence or AGI, which is like human level or human comparable intelligence. I mean, the field's been around for decades and there have been a lot of different approaches to doing this. But currently, as far as I understand as an outsider, and I hope I, you know, I might make little mistakes in explaining this because it's not my expertise, but I think I can generally summarize the nature of the technology is that you have these neural networks, which is like all these processors sort of uh, wired together in the way uh, the nodes of a brain are connected. These neural networks go through machine learning algorithms where the machine is like teaching itself things. Um, there used to be like uh, supervised machine learning and now it's like an unsupervised. They just have these alg machine learning algorithms and they feed data in and it learns somehow and then it produces a result. And they don't really know how the machines th are thinking, if you want to call it thinking. They don't really know what goes on. and It's like a black box. Their, their data goes in and it learns something and then it comes out and then the researchers say, huh, that was impressive. I wonder how that happened. And they try to figure out how the machine is thinking, but they don't really know what's going on inside the machine. Very similar to like neurologists don't know what's going on inside the human brain. Uh, in fact, some of the research into trying to figure out figuring out how artificial intelligence works is very similar to what neurologists do when they study human brain activity. You know, they like hook probes up to the brain, or, you know, uh, sensors, and they say, oh, when you when you think about words, this part of your brain lights up. And when you think about running, this part of your brain lights up. They, the, the researchers do that now with these artificial intelligence uh, computers. They say, oh, when the computer is doing language like this, these nodes in the neural network are lighting up, and maybe that means this. And oh, when it's doing this kind of visual processing or something, these parts of the computer brain light up, and they try to maybe make hypotheses about how the artificial intelligence is working. Anyway, so that's, that's machine learning. And uh, machines that generate images or text or audio or video are generative AI. They can produce something with the artificial intelligence. Generative AI is a little bit of a ambiguous term. Sometimes it's just used to refer to like image generating AI or video generating AI as distinct from like text generating AI, but basically it's all gener generative AI. Okay, so something like ChatGPT, which generates text, is now being called, you know, part of generative AI, and you get programs that will produce graphic images and, and, and so forth. Okay, that's also generative AI. And then large language models are machines that have been taught a language, basically. So that's like ChatGPT, which took the world by storm late last year when it was released. These are very sophisticated, large computer intelligences or AI models, whatever you want to call them, that have been trained on huge amounts of language. And then they can produce language, they can generate language in response to prompts. We don't know exactly how they produce the language or why they produce the results they produce, but we know that it's very impressive and it can, for the most part, pass a Turing test, the classic test proposed by Alan Turing, a computer scientist from generations ago who proposed that the test of like the quality of artificial intelligence is if the work of the artificial intelligence can pass for the work of a human. 
if you can't if you can't distinguish between the two. Right. It was a question of whether machines can ever think. Can they be intelligent? Can they reason and so forth? And that led to all kinds of questions about what is it we mean by the concept think? What is it we mean by reason? And so instead of getting a, a substantive definition of that, Turing decided to bypass all of that and propose an operational definition. And basically, if human beings cannot tell the difference between, let's say, communication with another human being, who presumably thinks, and a machine, if you can't tell the one from the other, then in an operational sense, the machine is thinking. So your, your view is, is that the, the large language model programs chat GPT can pass Turing tests? Yeah, well, they, they have in research. A lot of humans can't tell the difference between text generated by, by ChatGPT or text generated by humans. Well, that, that's really sad because <laughs> I can tell the Well, I can't always tell the difference because, because so much, so much dialogue, text chatting on, on the internet or, you know, I, was, I taught college and you receive student papers. So much of that is, is bad. Exactly. So, you know, in my interactions with these these things, what I'm getting from chat GPT and the other ones is very much like that. There's, see, I can tell there's no thought there, just like there's no thought, you know, when students write papers and a lot of the times when people give you some kind of canned response in an internet chat. Yeah, because a lot of human interaction is kind of formulaic and predictable and uh, it can be easily right, mimicked exactly. by one of these large language models. Right. You said that large language models, people don't really know how it works. I, I don't know the ins and outs of it, but I think that the large language models are pretty basic in terms of the, the, the concept. Computers have access to a tremendous amount of written language, and they are able, on the basis of what has already come down, you know, already been written, to predict what is the next thing to be said. They're able to optimize what's the, the, the next best word or, or, you know, phrase or so forth, and they can string together words and phrases like that, and then a human being will write something, and they know on the base, or they can, you know, like compute on the basis of a lot, a lot of data, what's the optimal or most likely response to that, and they can just keep on keep on doing that. Is your understanding similar to mine? I think that that is an explanation for how they work that I have heard. But I mean, this is like this people in the, you know, in the field who I've heard describe these things say, in certain respects, we still don't quite understand. I'd like to know more about like, how this is discussed. But I don't know if it's even that important to the discussion of the dangers of the technology. But you know, I've heard Computer scientists say that there's an aspect of AI that's a black box. We don't really understand how it works. Just saying it's a matter of like calculating probabilities of the next word seems a little bit inadequate to describe what's going on. I mean, I've seen some discussions where researchers have pointed to certain types of results that large language models have produced that seem to indicate some amount of reasoning going on that's beyond just predicting the next probable word. It's not quite clear what that reasoning is or if you can fairly call it the same kind of reasoning as human reasoning. I don't know. The thing is though, it, it, the question of like, what is artificial intelligence? Is it a, a type of intelligence that's somewhere in the, the continuum of moving toward human intelligence or surpassing it or bypassing it and having some other type of intelligence? That's one question, but you don't have to know the answer to that to understand the dangers of the technology and how it's being produced. So I'm not really getting into that in this paper because it's complicated and I don't know if anyone even knows for sure. Okay, right. So I, I'm just trying to get clear on the terminology. I mean, generally, generative AI is distinguished from what we used to call back in the old days AI you know, artificial intelligence, I mean, my whole life, and I'm not a young person, what we we, we meant is what they're now calling uh, AGI, uh, artificial, you know, g general intelligence. And that is, I think, typically understood as like the ability to reason, you know. So you're, you're saying that there's something like reasoning going on with some some of this generative AI, but but AGI is still aspirational at this point. It is aspirational, but it's something that is actively right. 
being worked on. Something active. So, so the stuff that's actively being worked on is pretty much the generative AI at this point. Well, people are actively working on taking these large language models and figuring out how to continue this work that's been accomplished with large with large language models and move it in the direction of artificial general intelligence. So like one one theory is that well let's say you were like a brain raised in a jar, a human brain and you were taught language. You still wouldn't be able to do much with that language without an understanding of the world. So one theory is you're going to build these world models which are basically like data sets their you know, understanding of, of the world. And that will work in tandem with a large language model to create something more akin to human, human level intelligence. Right. So people are working on machines that potentially down the road could reason. That activity is going on. That goal is, seems a large way off. What seems to be accomplishing results at this moment is the generative AI. And that's you're you're mostly concerned with the dangers posed by the rapid development right now of the generative AI. Yeah, but I think it should be pointed out that you know obviously like thinking intelligent machines will be very dangerous to have, and that there's an industry with a lot of money behind it trying to right. develop those. And some people in the industry think that goal is not far off at all. Right um, now, industries people say all sorts of things. There's a lot of hype. There's a lot of just saying ambitious things thought we were going to have self-driving cars by now. Uh, when I was a kid, thought we were have flying cars by now. So, you know, this, but uh, anyway, the, my paper is not about Terminator level killer robots. It's about the dangers of generative AI. Okay, good. So we're talking about in particular generative AI and its implications for general AI. And we've talked about large language models as things that generate text at this point. And the other term that comes into play that you've used here is chatbot. Everyone's interacted with a chatbot probably on the computer before. A chatbot can be any type of computer algorithm that you can have a text conversation with. And and up until very recently, they were fairly unintelligent. They were using a very, what you maybe call like a weak artificial intelligence. So a lot of canned responses and very simple sort of predictive responses to text. Usually they're used by like consumer uh, service departments to deflect customer responses to like get rid of customers questions, right? Um, to be like as confusing and, and poorly designed as possible to like keep people from bothering to the customer service agents. But chatbot can also be used as a term to describe things like ChatGPT, this new type of large language model based program that can have very sophisticated conversations over a text. So it's sort of a, a general term. You seem to say you're being inundated with a lot of commentary, you know, punditry, information about this new technology or group of technologies, and you wanted to get matters straight in your own head. But let me ask you a further question about that. Why did you find that particularly important? There's a lot of things out there that one could get straightened out in one's own head that, you know, I don't know how my refrigerator works, right? That's okay with me, right? You know, so why this? It just seems very current and potentially disruptive. We saw what happened in 2016 with disinformation online. I'm like acutely aware of all the fragile um, nature of cybersecurity and how the safety of the internet seems to be held together by a thread. I work in a field that could easily be replaced by um, artificial intelligence. And a lot of people I know work in fields that could easily be replaced by some of this technology. So it's very relevant, I think, to a lot of people, including myself. And I wanted to get a sense of what the distance was between the real threats and the hype. And things are also moving so fast, uh, I kind of wanted to understand the nature of that movement. Right. A lot of this stuff has been in development, has been talked about for a very, very long time now. So some things like you have a word processing program and you type and you have autocorrect. So that's some sort of low-level AI, right? So given that a lot of these things are not new, they haven't come from out of nowhere suddenly. Why is artificial intelligence so much in the news right now? Uh, and is the hype, as you're calling it, is it justified? 
or is it just hype to generate investment dollars? My suspicion is that there was really a qualitative change in the nature of this technology. First, when these generative AI programs like that can generate images from text came out last year, like Stable Diffusion and Midjourney. And then uh, later in the year when ChatGBT came out, these seemed, I think, to many people like real qualitative changes in the nature of artificial intelligence. And a lot of people would call like the former things like Google search results or YouTube algorithms a type of soft AI or like home, home assistant devices like Alexa and Siri like a soft AI, you know, they're intelligent in the sense that they can, like Alexa can understand the human voice and respond to it with like curated sort of simple algorithmic responses. But being able to generate video audio from simple text prompts, being able to have conversations over text that very closely resemble human conversations, those are real changes. And uh, part of me was curious, like, why? Like, how, what is this like some a technology that's just been around a long time and suddenly people released it? Or like, was there some big breakthrough in the field? What, what happened? And my understanding is that for a while now, advances in neural networks were being conducted under the premise that, that improvements were made by tweaking the machine learning algorithms. So like changing little things about how the machine learns. At some point in the last few years, AI researchers decided that the algorithms were good enough that they would get more improvements in their models just by feeding more data into the neural networks. So they started feeding way more information, way more data into the networks, and they got huge uh, improvements in the performance of the artificial intelligence. That meant that like the process of improving the artificial intelligence wasn't something that needed to like better science or better ideas or better technology. It just meant give the computers way more data to learn on and then you get be way better results. And this allowed a certain scaling up of the technology and uh, it was sort of a leap crossed the threshold and all of a sudden the neural networks were able to do things they couldn't do and and people in the field were like actually surprised by the results thought didn't realize they were going to make such quick advances in the space of a few years it, it basically it's it's advances in the results the results are a lot better because they got a lot more data to draw on Okay, so it's not developing better algorithms or anything like that. It's like you got more information to work with, you, you do a better job. Right. So where do we stand right now? What are some of the issues that are facing artificial intelligence development? Yeah, this is I thought really interesting. Because these successes in artificial intelligence came from massive increases in the data sets that machines learned on, this requires certain resources in order to make improvements. You need huge amounts of data and you need more computing power to process all that data, more server space. So the companies that are able to make these advances are ones that have access to lots of data and ones that have access to huge energy intensive uh, computing systems. It's similar to Bitcoin mining. It's a energy intensive process. These are like extremely large computers that use a lot of electricity, a lot of water. So it is a space that is currently dominated by these huge uh, companies like OpenAI, Microsoft, Google, Meta, companies with a lot of server space already, you know, huge computing power already and access to lots of data. Now, at the same time, a lot of this data has been scraped from the internet for free. Like like OpenAI, they like took a lot of conversations off Reddit and other platforms. Stable Diffusion, I think, just kind of scraped a lot of art off the web without you know anyone knowing where they were getting their images from in order to train their image generating software. But now that we're in this new era of competition where people are realizing that AI companies are scraping the web for more data, there's become this idea that the companies who are scraping the web for data need to pay for it or get licenses or subscriptions or something to use what was hitherto just considered publicly available data. So there's sort of this emerging fight about what are your rights to use data that is, is on the internet. And if you can train your AI on it, there aren't like, it, there are court cases, you know, like Meta, the parent company of Facebook is involved with some court cases trying to keep developers from 
using Facebook data to train AI. So there's there's this brewing hot mess of legal issues around data. There's also this issue that it seems like with any resource that improves the efficiency of your of performance that at some point you get to diminishing returns. So it seems like this discovery that you can get huge increases in the performance of artificial intelligence through increasing the learning data. Uh, it seems that that's starting to hit the law of diminishing returns that now it's getting to the point where let's say, you know, I'm just making up some numbers, but let's say you want to get like a 3% improvement on chat GPT. You might have to double the amount of data you're feeding into it. That involves like doubling the computing power that you need. So the companies are starting to hit like a, a wall where it isn't economically feasible for them to improve the technology anymore through the current method of just feeding it more data. Does that make sense? What are they going to do to overcome that barrier? What are they thinking about? Right. It seems like a couple things. One, maybe, and this is a theory that I don't know if it's true, but I, you know, one theory I suggest in the paper could be that, I mean, that OpenAI, the company, released ChatGPT when they realized that they were going to hit this barrier and they didn't know if they were going to improve the technology anymore. And so they said, let's just release it and monetize it now before a competitor does it. And we'll just get more investment capital from it. It will there'll be lots of hype. Everyone will want to throw money at us because we're the first ones to release a large language model that can do all these amazing tricks. I don't know if that's the real reason they did it, but that's it's possible that that was the logic, you know? But it seems like now you hear a lot of people talking about data pruning, where they want to, um, instead of just scraping the web for all the data, pruning the data first before you put it into a machine so that you're using less computing power. I don't know exactly how you prune data, but this would be like getting rid of redundant information, taking out information you don't want somehow. I have no idea how that works, but that's sort of one of the theories in place. Another theory in place is that you could use a larger AI to train a smaller AI. What does that mean? I think it's sort of like, imagine if you spent two years writing a book and then you wrote a book about all your research and I could read it in two days. It's sort of like that. You have a larger AI and it decides what is the relevant training data and it sort of hones that and that you have a smaller data set that you can feed into a smaller AI that uses less computing power. So you take your big one you already have and it runs some algorithms and kind of condenses the material so it doesn't take as much space up. And then you t it gives that material to the smaller computer, basically. So it's performing the same functions. is just as powerful, but it's not as bulky. It doesn't need to have quite as much data in it. I think I, I, I believe that's but, you know, I'm not in the field. Like, I might be mis-explaining it. There's, there's one other really crucial development that should be mentioned, and that's the spread of open source artificial intelligence technologies in the past couple months. I think it was in February, Meta, the parent company of Facebook, they were working on their own artificial intelligence called Llama, which is some play on words that uses large language model as part of the acronym. And they decided to release Llama open source on the internet so anyone could download it and use it and modify it any way they wanted to. Releasing software as open source is a common tactic in competition. The idea is like this is something that Google did with the Android operating system, which is used on cell phones. Uh, in order to compete with the iPhone, they released their Android system open source hoping it would help the operating system proliferate more, be used on more cell phones, and just become more of like the dominant operating system used on most of the world's cell phones, and that would help them just get an edge over Apple. I, it seems like Facebook did the same thing with Llama, that it released it, hoping that that would be their way of competing with OpenAI and Google's Bard and Microsoft's Bing. Llama would be like the open source alternative that everyone would use because you didn't have to pay a subscription to use it. And so now there's this open source artificial intelligence, which very quickly people were able to get running on personal computers, probably fairly beefy, newer machines with really good processors. 
These are so you know, like OpenAI. If you want to use ChatGPT, everything you're you're doing with ChatGPT online is going to these giant servers for this huge supercomputer that's running the algorithms and and generating responses. But you can download Llama onto your personal computer, disconnect from the internet, and everything is happening on your own computer. They were able. They've been able to streamline the language model, the artificial intelligence so efficiently that it takes far less computing power. And it's sort of already upended the competition in the industry because for a few months, it was all about huge computers and huge amounts of processing to run these things. And now all of a sudden, they've been able to scale down the size of these things so quickly they can be run on a personal computer. Also, because it's open source, you know, like, ChatGPT has certain amount of guardrails in place. It's not supposed to be able to tell you how to make a pipe bomb or make a racist joke or to build like malware, even though you could probably trick it into doing that. But if you have an open source AI that you can tweak and do whatever you want with it, you can make it do anything you want. You, there's no guardrails, even even laughable guardrails to stop you. Right. Wasn't there a, a leak somewhere that caused them to make it open source? Yeah, it's a little confusing, but it seems like they released Llama open source, but they didn't release the weights, which are sort of like the processed data that is like the actual intelligence of the machine. But the weights were then leaked by someone in the company a couple of weeks later. And so it's it's now totally operable. There was another in the side-by-side -side comparisons with ChatGPT, Llama open source. AI, it isn't as fast and not quite as powerful, but it's more efficient and, and you can use it offline. Um, so that's the, the big advantage, the big game changer. But there, there are a lot of people who've been working on artificial intelligence, you know, for, for decades, who've gone public recently saying, look, we got to slow down. We need to have a moratorium on releasing new things. We need to have regulation. We need to have more scrutiny and, and, and so forth. They're warning of all kinds of threats. What are the, 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 the big threats that are looming that the people are, are warning about and how, how realistic are those, those warnings? Yeah, I mean, one of the things about this technology is that it's so open-ended, right? You could basically use this stuff to do anything that a human could imagine or that a computer could imagine. So we, we could probably sit here all day and just think of various awful nefarious things you could do with the technology as it exists now, right? Um, but it seems, it seems like the, the big categories that people are talking about are misinformation, which is pretty significant, along with the misinformation, like a real erosion of truth on the internet. There are, in a slightly playing forward the technology, but not playing forward that much, there's the danger of AI being used in warfare increasingly, and maybe taking the place of human decision-making in warfare. There's like aspects of cybersecurity, which are I think really dangerous when you have AI that can pass the Turing tests and, and, and pass for people online. And then there's the job displacement stuff. That stuff, it's not always easy to figure out where the overly hyped discussions of like job labor displacement, how to balance that with more like cautious analysis of like potential disruptions in the job market. But I think it is significant, at least in some industries and some types of work that the labor displacement is a real, has a real potential to be displaced. Okay. Now you're coming through an area I know a lot about. I'm going to ask you what might seem to be a very simple question, but it's it's not a simple question. When you say labor displacement, do you mean that certain jobs will disappear, be taken over by machines, so that people will then have to find other jobs in other industries, right, other lines of work? Or do you mean that the net number of jobs is just going to shrink, that there will be mass unemployment. I mean, the former. Certain types of jobs are going to be threatened and people will have to find something else to do. Whether one can make some grand prediction about the total number of jobs going down, I wouldn't know how to make that calculation. Right. People often confuse the two things. And it, that's where a lot of the alarmism that's rather unfortunate comes from is people say, okay, this kind of job is disappearing. And we've seen a hell of a lot of that. 
right? I remember Michael Harrington, oh, this must have been 40 years ago, warning about ATMs. And he was saying, what's going to happen to jobs for bank tellers? Well, fewer jobs for bank tellers, right? But it's like, it's not a great loss because you had a dead-end job as a bank teller. Now you're going to find some other dead-end job. The people that are making that sort of argument that there's like a net loss in jobs, right? That's based on the idea that if you were able to create machines that can do anything a human could do, then you could potentially replace any human job with the machine. Now, obviously, I don't think that the current crop of AI computers can replace do anything a human can do, but they can emulate a lot of tasks that humans do now. And it's not just like menial, mindless tasks. There are some pretty, what I would have considered sophisticated skill sets that could be potentially threatened by large language models or image generation software. So we'll see. I don't know like how exactly these things will play out because it's complicated and there are a lot of factors. One factor is just computing power, right? If let's say you could replace your entire call center with chatbots, it would only make sense to do that if the cost of running those chatbots on like a expensive computer system was cheaper than hiring a call center in India, right? Um, so it's not like a given that just because the technology exists that the labor is going to be replaced by machines, there has to be an economic benefit. And there's also the reliability issue. Some of these technologies need a lot more, a lot of kinks need to be worked out before they are reliable enough to replace humans. It might be more that they're used to replace some of your workforce so that they have computers monitoring what they produce and making sure they don't make too many mistakes, you know? I mean, one, one issue that comes to my mind is that, I mean, there's always this. This is new technologies coming along, making certain kinds of jobs automated, making certain kinds of labor outmoded, redundant, no longer needed. What concerns me about that, especially though, is what happens if the pace of that picks up. It's one thing for 5% of the workforce to have to pick up and move, retrain, etc., etc. What happens to their income in the meantime? time, but 5% is one thing, 10% is a different thing. So do you know anything about whether the job displacement uh, thing is expected to accelerate? I don't know. I mean, you, I've seen all sorts of wild predictions. You probably have too. You get these people who are like, 80% of all work will be replaced by AI in the next 10 years. <laughs> that seems pretty extreme. So I somehow doubt that's the case. But and then there are other people who say, oh, we'll just use these as, as assistants to work and they'll make everyone more efficient, but no one will lose their job. So I don't know. That's I mean, not going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, not under capitalism, that's not going to happen. In yeah, social obviously. society, that could happen. I mean, why would you hire a copywriter when you just have a machine that can write copy for you? I mean, there's so many things that are like low-hanging fruit that will probably be lost. You know, why pay for a stock images? I mean, there's so many little things that are careers for people that just can easily be, easily be replaced by the current crop of technologies. We have seen announcements from some big companies that they're going to not hire more workers because of until they wait to see what's going on with AI. I mean, I've, there was some announcement, I think IBM last week, that they were had a hiring freeze. But, but you know, I think sometimes companies use things as excuses to fire people or to not hire more people, but that's not the real reason. So it's hard to know from that kind of reporting what's the real reason for those kind of movements and, and hiring, you know? Right. I, I think one thing that's scaring a lot of people is that really, I'm not just talking about the, the generative AI, but really since the growth of the internet, we've had a lot of intellectual labor that has encountered this problem for the first time. You know, intellectual jobs seem to have been cushioned from the technologies making certain skills redundant. But you look at the whole field of journalism, and it's been just decimated by uh, online publications and other things. I mean, for instance, I, I have a relative who is a food critic. Food criticism is close to being dead because what turned out to be the case is people just want to know where they should go eat and they can find that out on Yelp without the, you know any, any criticism, any thought about the food, just like, yeah, here's a good place to go eat. So that did a, a number on jobs like that and other things have happened in journalism whereby people can, with the internet, go exactly to what they want. They don't need a whole newspaper with all kinds of sections and this and that and the other thing. So a lot of people, even prior to this AI stuff, the intellectual labor 
of certain sorts has, has already been under serious threat for a decade or more. So I, I expect that will continue. Yeah, but we see, I mean, look, there's a writer's strike now in, in Hollywood that's, amongst other things, it's about streaming, but it's also about large language models uh, and whether or not they're allowed to use those in writing scripts for movies and shows. It could be that industries like Hollywood, where they have actually strong collective bargaining, they're going to be able to protect those jobs from threats. But very little of the job uh, of writing is in that sort of industry that has strong collective bargaining, right? Most writers are like freelance workers, and they're very much under threat. I mean, right now, Amazon is seeing a deluge of AI-generated books that are being published as eBooks on Amazon. And already, human writers are complaining that their books are being used to to train AI to write cheaper versions of their books. You know, you write a book about uh, the history of the drumsticks, and then uh, AI reads your book and writes a version of AI version of on the same topic and releases it for a one, as a one dollar ebook. Now there's no incentive for you to write a book anymore because your book is just going to be used to train AI to replace you. Uh, and we're already seeing that dynamic on, on Amazon, and we're going to soon see it with a lot of content that's generated for the web in general. A lot of people put content on the web to get advertising revenue. But if you have a chatbot that can scan the internet and answer questions for you without actually you having to go to a website and look at an advertisement, there's no reason for people to put stuff online anymore in the first place. So there's there's an immediate threat to like anyone who writes in any form for a living from this kind of technology without the technology having to be any better at all. It seems to be that that's a copyright issue, but uh, it seems very, very hard to police that. Yeah. Well, we've seen how slow the legal system has been to like adjust to some of the new realities of the internet. And Hey, we're going to return to this conversation in just a moment. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take just a few minutes to hear from Angie Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and today's many other social, political, and economic crises make this a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we are faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing in all-out authoritarianism extinguishing our right to carry on these discussions. Yet at the same moment, the multiracial movement for black lives has spread to every corner of the country and the world, launching a flood of activism and new ideas that deepen the concept of freedom. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not to socialism. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organization and whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marxist philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. To this end, we open our website to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world. We intend to practice as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice. 
and as the way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Please join us. The head of OpenAI, which is the company behind ChatGPT, the head of it, Sam Altman, testified before Congress, I think it was a Senate committee, a few days ago. And that generated a lot of news, unlike other tech people who've come before Congress and been very testy and combative, like Zuckerberg. They seemed taken with him, and he was like, oh, yeah, we need to regulate, and please regulate us. And it seemed to indicate to some pundits that this was a new era. Was he conning them? The devil was often in the details. But what is your take on all of this? I mean, I think there are probably several factors behind it, and I, I'm not an expert because things are moving so fast and there's so many things going on. The EU is in the middle of considering some sort of legislation governing AI, and it could be that he's trying to get ahead of that regulation in the U.S. and suggest regulations that are helpful for his company so that they're not taken by surprise with potential regulation. I think the other big factor, though, is the open source stuff that uh, is happening. I think Google and OpenAI are very concerned about losing their their market position because of the proliferation of, of open source artificial intelligence. So when you see him proposing like, oh, maybe people should have licenses to develop artificial intelligence, that may be a way of his company trying to circle the wagons a little bit around their own uh, market position and find some way of like keeping other actors out of the market. So there, there are a limited amount of competitors. Um, there was a big leak of an internal Google memo a couple of weeks ago that's being talked about a lot called the no moats leak. It was an internal memo by Google that said, basically, we have no moats to protect ourselves against the open source AI anymore. We have nothing to guarantee our dominance in the market because of the open source AI technology. And it was lamenting that they were going to lose lose all this money to the open source AI. It very well may not be the case that the Google is in such a weak position because they have they own like half the data in the world. And data is like what is going to be the big commodity in, in the world of AI. But anyway, I, th- I think a lot of it's just one of the biggest players in the industry trying to get ahead of the regulators and figure out how to shape that regulation to uh, help the, his firm. I doubt that it's going to somehow solve all the dangerous issues we have about pl- proliferation of, of this technology. I'm having a little trouble, more than a little trouble, understanding the link between calling for regulation and giving some leg up to open AI. How does, how, do, how does Sam Altman saying you need to regulate, how does that help open AI in particular? If you have to get a license, an expensive license from the government in order to develop, uh, sell AI software, then that keeps a lot of people out of the marketplace. Right, but he's already got some big competitors, right? Right, but he could have a lot more because now he's competing with anyone with a laptop who could create an AI program and sell it. So what if there's a licensing process that requires like a very expensive license and a bunch of government oversight that would be favorable for open AI, as opposed to now where they're competing with like free software, right? They have an, they have an extremely expensive operation. They've million dollar machines, right? So, so, so it's not so much that he was there as an advocating regulation that would help open AI in particular, but the big AI companies as a whole, as, as against startups. Yes. Right. Okay. Okay. Got, got that. What do you think about regulation as a potential solution, guardrail, whatever, about the potential problems with artificial intelligence and, and in general, what do you think about the, the idea that like capitalism can solve this kind of problem within it when it can't solve any other problem within it ever? Well, you know, I think that the best solution is that capitalists just police themselves and consumers vote for the best capitalist and that's the safest solution. You vote with your dollars, yeah. Yeah, you vote for your dollar. And capitalists, they know how to police themselves. That's always produces the best results. We've seen it again and again. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's it's all for the best in the best of all possible worlds. I mean, and we've already seen with social media companies how pathetic the 
regulators and governments have been to understand the scope of the problem and to act decisively. There are these signs that that there are government actors who are a little more alarmed and like eager to do things faster than they were with like Facebook and but ultimately these regulations will only go so far because there's a lot of geopolitical competition at stake in the AI industry. Um already America has taken a very defensive position about the production of silicon chips for AI. The better your computer chips, the faster your computers, the better your AI runs, the more efficiently it runs. So right now, America makes the best AI chips, and the Trump administration passed a law that those chips could not be sold to China. So China's AI industry is lagging behind the U.S. because their chips are not as efficient, so it's more expensive for them to run AI. So we're already kind of locked in this race to develop the technology better and faster than China. In that scenario, anything the U.S. government does to slow down AI development in the States, it's going to be be an asset for China. And likewise for China, anything they do to slow down the development of AI is going to help the U.S. So it feels like a very Cold War-like scenario where both sides don't have much of an incentive to demilitarized to, to, you know, to slow down the development of what is basically like a weapon. So in that scenario, I'm like very skeptical as to how significant these regulations are going to be. Right, because the, 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 there will be workarounds and loopholes and uh, compromises in, in the regulations so that they don't do what they, you know, an ideal set of regulations could potentially do. And, you know, now that like this stuff has been leaked and is open source and from descriptions I've read, like doesn't require a high level of computer skills to operate on your machine. It's sort of like already been proliferated everywhere. Right. The, The current state of large language models is now public. Yeah. Anyone can just yeah. have one on their computer, do whatever they want with it. It's not like a nuclear weapon that is being developed in some giant government laboratory that no one has access to. It's like a very small nuclear weapon that anyone can put on their computer. Right. So what you seem to be indicating is because it's been diffused like that, that makes it triply hard to regulate? Yeah. But what about the other potential problems? Yeah, well, there is the... Um Application in warfare, we don't know exactly like the state of all the artificial intelligence used by the military already, but we know that like defense contractors like Palantir are already like developing AI systems that would help analyze battlefield scenarios and suggest courses of action to commanders. I watched this video that Palantir made and it's it kind of looks like a video game or it just sort of really quickly analyzes a hypothetical battlefield and then like a menu pops up kind of like in Google Maps when it su- you get suggested different routes to take on the map it's sort of like that do you want to choose 1 2 3 or 4 and then you would the commander would choose 2 and then it would sort of execute the battle plan the idea being that like in a battle processing information quickly and making quick decisions or it could be really decisive so if artificial intelligence is doing that processing, you could really get a leg up on your opponent if you make a faster decision. Of course, like they put a human operator at the end of that process to make it feel like the operator is still making the decision, but you have to wonder at what state is that person's decision like really an independent human decision, right? Like when a Google Maps suggests like two routes and it tells you what the fastest route is, you just choose the fastest route. You don't like think about it much. And even if you try to stop to think about it, you don't really know what information the algorithm used to make those suggestions. So you don't really have an independent way of making an opinion. It's basically the algorithm is telling you what to do. And there's even like a, a, a possibility that just the, that the, the longer it takes for a human to try to think through it, if your enemy is also using an AI to make similar decisions, there's like a race against time to, to act faster. So there's a disincentive to prioritize human judgment in that sort of, sort of situation. I mean, this is a hypothetical technology. It hasn't been like adopted by the military as far as I know, but it's it's in development. It's, it's the kind of an example of the dangers of introducing AI into the military theater. One of the most prescient 
writings about this danger is actually comes from a book by, of all people, Henry Kissinger, who teamed up a year or two ago with a couple other AI researchers. I think Kissinger is like 98 or something, but he's like really into the dangers of AI and wrote this book about the dangers of AI, especially in terms of warfare. Because in modern warfare, where people have weapons that can blow up the whole world, like deterrence is a big issue. And restraint is actually like part of the logic of war is deciding not to use your whole arsenal when you're at war, because you could escalate things to like nuclear holocaust levels. So if you're introducing elements into decision making that take human restraint out of the equation, you're potentially making warfare much more dangerous. Yeah, I mean, a lot of things are making a lot of things very dangerous because of the use of algorithms in a an unthoughtful kind of mechanical way without understanding that an algorithm is not like a mathematical theorem. It's either intentionally or unintentionally got particular assumptions embedded into it. It's only as good as those assumptions. And this applies to warfare. It applies to things like options pricing, securities pricing. Remember remember the, the Great Recession and all, all of that? You had this Black-Scholes model. You know, and basically that was an algorithm that some very smart guys came up with and it was quite good, but quite good didn't cut it when push came to shove. So this re- reliance on algorithms, which are just like they're rules of thumb. That's all an algorithm really can ever be is a rule of thumb. I mean, certain things can be proven, but they don't do that anymore. They just employ these things without proof and without testing them. Nobody's going to be able to effectively regulate this under capitalism. Nobody's got a an incentive to do so. And we, we live in a world system where there's international rivalries, like you were saying, you know, between the U.S. and China and so forth. It's things just very dangerous. And the thing here is it, it, it kind of transcends like the most recent vintage of AI technology. This is an instance, I think, of a, a much broader problem. Mm-hmm. You know, for instance, like the Google Maps example. Yeah. Driving directions. You aren't presented with like an explanation of why Google suggests certain routes. No. Well, they say they, it, they go. Do you do you, do you want the, you want the shortest? Do you want the fastest? Yeah, but you don't actually know exactly why it's making that calculation. No. Is it based on a traffic report? Is yeah. it based on an accident? Is it based on other people's phones moving through space and say like, I don't. You just kind of know. You just trust it that it's going to give you the right decision and you follow just the, the, the recommendation and right. you don't even take the time to try to work it out in your head. Right. But so much of our modern lives are like this already. So what's the solution here? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, we need a different society. This is just crazy. It's just completely insane. We didn't even get to talk much about all the potentials for disinformation, but I think it's obvious for most people. Like the people are already using generative AI to uh, overrun the social media with fake content, fake people, and fake video. Every, you know, and it's just going to get going to get worse and worse. I don't, I don't really know. It's just very, it's a crazy, it's a crazy time. We just need to sell blue check marks. Yeah, we just, yeah, we'll just sell blue check marks. We didn't get to talk about Elon Musk's. Um, you know, he's wants to develop a chatbot that's not woke, like ChatGPT. Uh huh. So we have Elon Musk uh, X company that's going to develop a anti-woke chatbot. We have, so we have that to look forward to. <laughs> I, 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 hope, I hope he just destroys Twitter really quickly rather than dragging it out. I hope he invents like a self-aware robot that stabs him in the face. We, we, the, you know, the, the, the ultimate problem here is we got a society where there's no conscious thought behind anything there's everything's anarchic there's no planning and behind all of that is the antagonism of interests everybody's out for themselves and nobody's minding the store and that's an old story capitalism is just caught up in that it, it can't be different from that and every new thing comes along it could be used for good but like there's no incentive in the end to use it for good Hey, that's all the time we have for this episode of Radio Free Humanity. If you like the podcast, please do stop by MarxistHumanistInitiative.org to listen to other episodes and to read more about these issues and others. 
As always, if you like the podcast, we encourage you to write to us, to comment and rate the podcast, and of course, to share with all your friends and enemies. 